Okay, hello everybody and welcome back to Build Amazing Things Securely. I'm Laura Belmain and I am absolutely thrilled today to be joined by Ariel Shin. Now she is the product security team lead and I'll probably get it wrong, but she's going to introduce herself at Twilio. Uh, so thank you for joining us, uh, Ariel. Tell us about yourself. Who are you the human? Hi, my name is Ariel and I'm a product security team lead as Laura said at Twilio. Um, I work on a embed team, which works very closely with our messaging team, which is the flagship product for Twilio, which is primarily focused on making sure that we have an awesome API that allows developers worldwide to send messages. Awesome. And because we have another special guest today, we're going to do a bit of an extra intro. So special extra treat for our audience at home. So who's our furry friend, Ariel? Who else is joining us? <laughs> we have Mickey running around in the backyard. She hears the other dog barking. The neighbors, it's around afternoon in the US and so in Pacific. And so she, she hears them barking. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, team, we could, like many people will try and avoid that life is happening around them. That's not how security works. It's not how this podcast works. So welcome to you. Welcome to Mickey. Um, and it's really lovely to have you both on the show today. So having us, <laughs> let's get into the reality of this. Now, I'm going to make no assumptions about what our audience knows about Twilio and what you do in the world. So can you set the scene for us? What is Twilio? What's the tech that you're building there? Yeah, the example I love to use is that when you're going hopping into an Uber and you get that text message that your Uber is coming in 15 minutes, those text messages are most likely automated by Twilio. So we allow, uh, we have power an API or an application programming interface that allows developers to use that within their applications. So you'll see many, many companies sending you text messages easily because we power that API. We have a couple of other capabilities like email and a couple of other products that we have, but our main flagship product is uh, the messaging API. Awesome. Now, what I love about this is, you know, there's tech companies you, you meet with and you're like, oh, you, you, you know, sell widgets to so-and-so or you built a rocket ship or whatever. You're kind of underpinning some of the coolest techs that we all use every day. That's pretty awesome. How does it feel to be kind of ingrained in so many cool things? It's not just you, it's the whole world, the whole community. It's so different, especially dealing with telecom, because that's not something that you get to interface with very often. And so a lot of our conversations are about carriers like T-Mobile and Verizon, um, and not just the like regular customer user that I was very used to seeing in a business to consumer type company. Yeah, that, that's, you know, when we kind of, for this audience, for, for what we do in this podcast, as you'll know, team, we try and kind of look at, well, where does this fit? Like, what are we talking about tech-wise? This really is double-sided. So we've got uh, developers using the APIs and enabling their applications. And then underneath it, you've, you're building an entire product suite that is on top of another tech layer itself. That's That's complicated. So... Let's talk about the security of it. So you're a product security team lead. That's an awesome title. Um, so let's kind of dig into this. Why is security important to Twilio? And where does your role fit into making that happen? It's definitely at the core of what we do. We're a developer-first company. And so anytime you develop something, there is a very high likelihood that there are opportunities for attackers. Um, and so we'd like to protect our customers. We'd like to protect the people using our application. Um, so it comes down to we care about our customers. We want more people using Twilio. And so we do have to secure it right there. Uh, there's no using the app if there's no trust within the app itself. Mm. And I think there's an interesting kind of part of the threat model here that I think we don't see very often is that 
most people don't understand they're dealing with Twilio. You're kind of, you're enabling another brand to do its thing. And so the security risk that you are facing isn't just about the the direct of oh, something harmful happened to Twilio, but it's also the the knock-on of that relationship with that other brand. So if my, you know, widget company was using you to send messages, if there was something happened in your side that affects my security, that actually it's my audience and me that also uh, inherits some of that. That sounds really tricky. How how does it work on a day to day? How how does security work at that kind of scale? We we've had it like the kind of we are being used by customers and then their customers don't know that they're using Twilio. So in the example of Uber, they don't know that they're using us. Um, we've had situations where as like being a software as a, a SaaS company, software as a service company, you see that where uh, many companies are using us. Um, there are competitors out there. Um, and it's it's quite difficult when uh, an attacker can start enumerating your customer base because they'll see many people are using this product and it's very easy to associate the product with a company. So we do need to care a lot about our kind of what we offer and how we protect that and making sure that we have great relationships with our bug bounty researchers, that we're doing lots of threat models with our developers and that we're scanning our edge. And there's so many ways that you can build a product security program. Um, and coming from the application security side, it comes down to building our relationships with our developers internally, right? You have to start at the source. They're the ones building the code. And so I'm working to make sure that we have great relationships. We've got great foundational programs that they understand that the code that they deliver has impact on their customers. We need to prioritize security. This is really interesting. I'm going to pick into something you just said there, Ariel, because I think it's worth talking over. <clears throat> Both me and you, I think we share a background that we've uh, formerly been penetration testers. And, you know, many of us have either received or written a finding that says, hey, you can enumerate customers in your system and you should feel bad. And in some organizations, when you receive a finding like that, you know, you can list all of the potential customers through whatever angle. We kind of mark it as a you know, low severity, you know, oh, well, you can know who my customers are. But in the case of this organization, the case of Twilio and this kind of user model of a technology, that's really important because you're talking about, ah, I know all of these other applications are connected to this one technology. Um, so do you see um, any instances or any kind of threats when you're doing that threat modeling you're discussing around folks attacking companies like Twilio to get to their customers rather than to get to Twilio itself? We haven't really seen it in a threat model. And the primary reason for that is we try to scope it where kind of mm. when you're in the weeds, you're, you're mainly dealing with like they've got telecom and then you've got the application itself sit within a private network. Um, there isn't really, are they going to enumerate all of the customers that use Twilio? But we've had some like bug bounty issues where um, people would find a misconfiguration and instead of reporting it to us as Twilio, they'd identify our customers for a higher payout. So things oh. like that are quite tricky. <laughs> I have, that's harsh. Hey, bug bounty folk, be better. That That's not good. Well, you know, it's good business, but that's bad humaning. Um, okay, see, that's interesting. So the, the importance there then is that scoping in what you're doing and, and how you're building the system so that you're limiting that impact. That's really cool. If that scope is too large, you're not going to know where to start or kind of um, what vulnerabilities you can start enumerating. And then it starts to seem really intimidating because it's, okay, if we're including everything in scope, 
um, then I don't even know where to start. The problems can start anywhere. And so I think scope is really, really important. We just redid our threat modeling template. And that was something that was very difficult in the previous iterations where um, people just include a couple of documents. They'd include their architecture diagram. Um, they wouldn't really explain what that scope is in three to four sentences. Um, that was something that we wrote that we'd like to see full sentences and not just bullet points because to you it may be kind of easy and obvious, but as a security engineer coming in and not fully understanding that product, it's really important for us to see the full picture and to see where the boundaries of that picture are as well so that we're not pulling in other issues that may not be relevant. We don't have all of the time in the world. I wish we did to throw model all of the products, but we are constrained by time and resources. We have significantly more developers than we do engineers. And so we do have to kind of add these boundaries in order to ensure that the work that we do is impactful. That, that's a really practical tip there. So I really like that for our audience. So if you are doing anything in that threat modeling space, the importance of providing that context in a meaningful way. Um, and in that three to four sentences, I like that too. Um, the reason I like it is I like the focus. I like the focus in the story. Um, I think many organizations probably share that same challenge with you of, you know, having far more engineers than you do uh, security folk. What other challenges do you see kind of coming through in the AppSec space? And, you know, it doesn't have to be um, specific to Twilio, but, you know, what makes doing what you do hard? I always hear scale being such a large problem, and it really is. It's something that I think about with every solution that we think through. It's, does this scale? Does it scale well? Um, and I see it, I think, at smaller companies, it's, we want for when our developers grow that this program still withstands the test of time, that it's able to work with either 100 developers or 1,000 developers. Twilio Siege, we're already at the 5,000, or sorry, 3,000 developers as a company, I believe we're about 5,000 large. And so that's a wide number of developers and the product security team, I believe is around 10 people. So that ratio is insane where if I wanted to spend one-on-ones with my developers, I just wouldn't have enough time to do that. Um, we do try to prioritize kind of what are our critical business risks. And that's where my team comes in and it's important to still develop those relationships at any size. Um, I think sometimes we think of this solution where it's everything is automated, that you don't need any security engineers. We've got ChatGPT coming in in the near future. Everything will be automated. There'll be someone to help you out. But there's still a lot of value in that human connection element. Um, and I've been listening to some more podcasts recently. And one thing that I think is very good advice is be generous with your time. Even though you're constrained with resources, be generous with your time. Whether that be in a threat model when someone asks you a question that you feel like could have been done in documentation, link them that document because your number one thing is influencing people to care about security. And if you don't take that extra step or you're not the nicest to them, you don't build that great relationship, they're not going to care. They're not going to take that first step. And so it's be generous with your time, help where you can. You can't solve all of the problems immediately. You're not going to become best friends with every single developer that you talk with. But when that opportunity arises for you to take that extra step, you're allowed to be generous with your time. I think that helps build better relationships. And so I, I take that with me in any program that we try to scale. It's we can't just be thinking about automated solutions only. We have to think about how this works 10x. It really is. There needs to be a human connection. We're going to figure out the scale problem. We're going to build our foundation and we're going to build processes that allow users to interact with us in a way that's managed. 
but still allow for that human connection, be generous. Yeah, I, I think that's such an important message. And I think it's one that's very difficult for us to navigate, you know, in the security sector. Um, we just, uh, we, me and Ariel, we met at RSA and the giant conference in San Francisco for cybersecurity. And you can't escape the fact that we, you know, are now selling a solution for everything, an automated tool for everything. But um, it's really, it's a good reminder that actually the tools are an enabler. Um, but they, they're not going to replace what we do as people. Um, so, you know, I, I'm sure you have some feelings and opinions. You work around the space all day long. Uh, which bits of what you do are really good for automation? Um, and which bits do you kind of, you know, nah, automation isn't actually helping as much as we would like? I think there are a lot of repetitive tasks that are great for automation. Um, but I think there are some training elements where um, I know we've had this big debate of like, do we go to um, just like give every single person just like an automated training for them to do? Do we do live trainings? It's really hard to scale live trainings um, when your company grows or when uh, there are layoffs or when there are lots of new people joining. It makes it really hard to stay above that compliance number. Mm. Um, and so when things are repetitive, you want to say like, maybe automation's the way, or maybe there's a scalable solution. Um, but I think there's another situation in which threat modeling could be automated to an extent where um, you can kind of use different diagrams and different like languages so that you're kind of inputting the different parts of your diagram and then a threat model is generated. I've also seen ChatGPT do great, uh, great threat model generations where you kind of give it um, a fake scenario, a fake threat model, um, and then it'll tell you what those risks are and how to prioritize them. Um, so you may think like, okay, so maybe there's a future here where threat models are fully automated, but I think it's still really important to have that relationship of teaching folks how to threat model, giving direct feedback on threat model and allowing time in meetings for people to discuss any concerns that they have it doesn't have to be this kind of automated form or process that people have to follow. Yeah. And I think there's some interesting points you're making here. So, you know, maybe there is room in the world for an AI backed kind of security co-pilot, if you will. Um, you know, we can't have enough uh, human engineers to kind of be that supporting person at your side. You can go, hey, I, I'm, I'm thinking about this thing, but I need somebody to help me think it through. Um, I think it's probably a lot of work to do to make that safe, um, but it's it's a good place to start experimenting and play. Um, and then there's the, the point that you're making about a lot of what you're sharing is it's not about the answer. It's also about the analysis process that you're going through with the person. So when you're talking about generously giving your time, it's not that you're there to say, hey, the answer is X and you should do X, but you're helping them and facilitating them in growing that skill themselves. Um, what do you think the skills are that, you know, help you scale your small security team by putting those skills into the team themselves? So. Uh, what, what are the key skills for your engineers that you try and leave them with once you've given your time? I think it's to think critically about some problems. Um, a lot of times it's, uh, for, for some people, it's just an awareness problem where it's, they didn't know that this existed or they didn't know that this was possible. So by you giving them that information, they're now kind of enabled on this like paved path. They have the information, they're equipped with it, they're good to go. For others, it's they're looking at the problem a bit differently. Um, and you kind of open a door for them and they're going, oh, I, I didn't know I could be thinking about this way. Um, we have this great training where it's think like an attacker, where uh, instead of kind of going through just OWASP top 10, it's we pair that with 
hey, let's actually use this tool called Burp Suite, which you can then use as a like proxy interceptor. And you can kind of think through an attack what an attacker would do with an attacker's tool. Um, and I thought that really helped change the way of thinking of this is all possible. And so we just do it with um, the like OWASP website, the, the shopping website, forgetting mm -hmm. what it's called. Oh, G Shop. G Shop, yes. So we just use G Shop and it's just a normal website for them. And it's uh, the kind of back end of it is really indicative of segments environment. And so it's very, very easy for us to show like, here's a real website and here's what could go wrong. Um, some of them are really fun where I think there's one where you like put a negative number into checkout, you like become a millionaire. So we add a bit of humor to it. Um, but it, it's really exciting for folks to start to see like, oh, now I understand from the code that I build. It's kind of seeing the website and seeing the exploits happen in the wild, uh, mm -hmm. making that connection and changing the way that they're thinking about coding. That That's really cool. And you know, I massive kudos as always to the OWASP team and the resources they put out there are just phenomenal. G Shop being one of many, many that we can use. Um, and Burp Suite, you know, as a security tool, the, the free version has so much power that you can use as a teaching tool. So that fantastic work there. Now, when we're talking about our, our engineers, um, you know, they've got this knowledge now, they're getting these fledgling skills. What do you think the biggest barrier is? for an engineer, so not an AppSec specialist, but someone that you're supporting and working with, what's, what are the biggest barriers they face when trying to bring security into their world? I think not enough time. Um, yeah. There are a lot of things competing for anyone's attention at any day of the time. It could be kind of a dog running around where they don't have as much time that they'd like to focus on a problem, or it could be that there are competing concerns. The business wants a new feature shipped out at X amount of time. Uh, they're also caring a lot about what their user research team is saying. They're also caring a lot about uh, accessibility and UX. There are so many other concerns, and it's not just security. It's really that developer is the one who's responsible for building the thing. And then it's all of these other people have their opinions on how they should build it. They can feel overwhelming at times. You just kind of want to drown out the voices, do your thing, get maybe get it through a process, a code reviewer, and then you're like, I'm done with it. So it's there are many, many things competing for your time. Um, and that's why I think developer empathy is extremely important to understand from the point of view of a developer how much things are competing for their time and why it's important for us to explain and influence why security should be prioritized when the time mm. Yeah, I think that's probably the part that is probably the hardest to visualize when you're sat outside of the engineers is quite how much stuff is being considered uh, when we build software. Um, so perhaps that's something for our audience at home to, if you are from the AppSec space and you haven't spent a lot of time with your devs, um, you go and have a, a ask, you know, where are those other things that we're caring about? You know, usability, scalability, all of those things. So do you think we can win, Ariel? So we've got too many engineers. There's not enough of us. Automation is going to help us, but not get us all the way. Can we win? I think it depends on what winning is. Um, right. I think we're always going to be a bit behind developers. Um, there's just kind of, we're uh, are we ever going to be completely at the same state and exactly what the developer is thinking? No. So I don't think we're ever going to win that. But when it kind of comes to changing the way that security, where security happens, how it happens, I think there's a lot of ways that we can influence and maybe kind of 
win in that way. Um, like I always see a lot of great wins at the company and I love seeing kind of developers working on a remediation without kind of any input from us. It was, we've built that relationship. They know that security is important. We've built a great process for them to kind of see the security vulnerability come through that's standardized across the board. So they don't need to ask any questions or learn more about this ticket because hey, they already know what that is. They have exact action items and they fixed it with an SLA. To me, that's a huge win. Um, I also love seeing leaders like engineering leaders come into our tickets and encourage users, hey, let's get this fixed sooner. Um, we've already extended the due date. We have a process that allows users to extend uh, the kind of SLA time and it has to be approved by a higher up leader depending on how severe this ticket is. Um, it's always really great to see leaders push back and say, like, don't want to grant another extension. Um, I'd like to get this prioritized first. To me, that's a huge win when we see engineering leaders prioritize security. Yeah, those are fantastic wins. And, you know, you're right. You're absolutely right. There's no overall win. We all know that secure software, 100% secure is not a thing. We don't even try a name for that. That's not a thing. But by the sounds of it, you know, getting your leadership to buy in and to be supporting you, so to be your voice in there helping you bring things through and get them prioritized is incredibly important. And getting those, you know, increasing the number of our vulnerabilities that can be addressed without specialist help, that's got to be a positive. Um, and measuring those things, keeping track of them is a great way to keep a positive view of what you're achieving as an AppSec team. Um, so that that's really inspiring. It's great to know that a larger scale, you know, you're quite a, a big scale compared to some of the audience and some of the guests we've had on, that those still remain true. So that's fantastic. So looking forward to the next 12 months, where do you think AppSec is headed? I think there's been a lot of excitement about kind of open AI and like uh, kind of any type of GPT or open source versions. Um, I think there's a lot of capabilities there. There's a lot that we need to do to secure it when kind of feeding it information that's private or confidential. Um, but I think there's a lot of exciting things there where uh, it's got people kind of excited again about um, I haven't seen this type of excitement in quite a while where. Um, we see like uh, we had a hackathon recently, a two day hackathon, and almost half the projects were like, oh, yeah, I like was trying to like mess around with chat GPT. I obviously scrubbed lots of the data um, and was like only sending kind of like boilerplate stuff. Uh, it was still like very exciting to see that we are all very interested to see what this tool can do and how it can enable us to scale that much faster. I think what you're saying is actually really a really important message. Um, you know, the, the chat GPT stuff, the LLM stuff, it's, it's vast. And I, I don't think I've personally ever seen technology move as rapidly and as widely at the same time. Um, and I know that in the security community, we can be very conflicted about this. You know, should, should we be doing anything? Is it, is, where's the risk? Uh, and that's natural. But if we don't have the curiosity and if we're not playing too, if we're not doing our hackathons like you're doing there, I feel like we're going to miss the opportunity to really be in there from from the birth of something new rather than coming in later and saying, hey, you should have thought about this differently. Um, that's very exciting. Um, so yeah. what? So in the security space, um, are you allowed to tell us are the cool security things that ChatGPT is going to be helping you with? We're, we haven't used anything outside of a hackathon environment, but to me, it's really the excitement and the opportunities that exist. I was going to say, like, um, I was just watching this, like, GIF on Reddit of, like, when um, TV went from black and white to color in Australia. And it was this really cool thing where it was, 
Um, I think there was pushback when like there are some people who like only wanted to continue to do black and white. A lot of people got really excited by all the opportunities in color. And at the end of the day, the actors and the filmmakers, they're still doing the same exact thing, right? They're still kind of trying to entertain their audiences. Uh, it really was just this like slight shift in the technology. It was groundbreaking at the time, but it doesn't fundamentally change kind of the entertainment value of anything, right? It just kind of adds to it. And I see ChatGPT and LLMs doing the same exact thing where um, it doesn't change what we do. We're not out of jobs. It really just enables us to do that much more and to think a bit more creatively out of the box. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I'm genuinely excited to see what we do in the AppSec space with it. You know, I don't think it's a, an unsafe tool. I'm, I'm excited. So uh, we'll, I will keep in touch and we'll see how those hackathon things turn into real things. Perhaps in a year's time, we'll all have stories to tell. So we're coming to the end of our time together and your little furry friend has been so well behaved. I, I am so very happy with your, your little puppy. Um, so is there anything you would like to leave our audience with? If there was a bit of advice you could give to somebody in your sort of role, so trying to help with product security for whatever they're building, what advice would you give? Main thing is develop relationships with your developers, um, generous with your time, I think sometimes we all rush to kind of get things done um, and we, we don't want to like deal with that extra meeting that's on our calendars. But I think those are really valuable in building those strong relationships and making security a priority for everyone. I think that's that's a really great note to kind of wrap this up on. So, you know, the focus of this podcast is we talk about the amazing things that are being built and Twilio and the story behind that is definitely a case of that. And to build amazing things, it's not just about technology, it's also the people behind them. So keep cultivating those relationships, as Ariel said, and um, perhaps when your organization scales to quite that big, um, you're going to pay dividends. Thank you so much, Ariel, for joining us today and for sharing all your insights. Um, and uh, perhaps we can have you back uh, again in the future and see how that journey progresses. Great. Thank you so much for having me.